because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a movie podcast, and I am your host, Justin. I'm Laura. And today we're talking about a movie, a 1993 movie called Searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh, this is a movie that uh, is about a chess prodigy. Mm-hmm. Uh, named Josh Waitzkin, and um, he is trying to sort of find his way in chess uh, while being surrounded by a bunch of kind of semi-overbearing adult figures who are serve as mentors to him. Um, and he's also in the shadow of Bobby Fischer, um, uh, trying to sort of find his way through uh, the chess world and exploring his his talents and nurturing his talents. Um this is a movie that I love from my childhood. I don't know if I saw it like, you know, in theaters or anything. But yeah, I, you would have been like nine. Yeah, yes. something like that. Okay. And I mean, I think I saw it. It's a really it, good age for it. I think I, yeah, I mean, I really, it works really well for a nine, 10 year old. Um, that's around when I saw it. And um, I I just fell in love with it. I mean, I, I, I think I, I do want to say that I independently was into chess. So I think I was into chess. And I think that's how I found this movie is, okay. is I, I was, I don't know, I did, you know, it's a movie about like a little kid who's into chess. Like that's, that's my jam. And, you know, I just really, really enjoyed it. Um, watching it today in 2020 with a child, it's a completely different watch. I mean, of course, back then I watched it from the perspective of young Josh Waitzkin, who's seven in the movie, um, you know, and just all the experience that he has going to chess tournaments, which, which I had, I did go to a few chess tournaments. Uh, going to hockey tournaments for me, playing hockey. He plays baseball. Um, d- I didn't live in Manhattan, but... Uh, <laughs> this is a very New York movie yes, in a lot of totally. ways. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think in a certain extent, I didn't even understand Manhattan and the geography of Manhattan and how close they are to Washington Square Park. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, uh, that's beside the point. I mean, I, <laughs> I watched all this stuff and I... I just identified so much with the kid. I mean, of course, he's really good at chess and I was mediocre at chess, but um, I I still sort of fancied myself like able to get good at chess if I worked at it. Sure, of course. And then I never really did. I, I moved on. Um, but yeah, this movie like ha- always sort of felt like it was a part, I don't know, part of my childhood growing up. And it's a movie that I don't think many people have seen. It's a movie that uh, I think I looked at the box office. It, it didn't make very much money. It made like seven million at the box office, mm. and I think it was roundly forgotten. I had no idea this movie existed until I met you. Uh, yeah, and I think you're not alone in that regard. Um, <laughs> I think that this movie um, is largely forgotten to the sands of time. It's 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 kind of interesting. I mean, it's it's a really straightforward movie. It has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think a lot of people see the poster or whatever or the synopsis and they think oh this is going to be like a shitty yeah you know child you know kid overcomes obstacles kind of movie and you know like a like a less funny version of i don't know mighty ducks or something (laughs) 
And but the thing is, it's it's so well done. I don't know. Like I really Airbud. Yeah, like I. Re- I mean, it is a sports movie, and we'll get into that. But I I do think that this is a a movie that really I don't know. It it just every even though it's so straightforward and so of its time in terms of the production and everything, mm-hmm. uh, how it looks, how it sounds, it's the score. Nuanced, though. Yeah, it's really deep. It it really I don't know. I feel like there's a level of care in this movie that that wasn't really present in a lot of the movies that have been forgotten of this time of the kind of mid nineties. Um, and yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's a movie that rewatching it now and getting this perspective of the parents and actually seeing that, Oh, I see the movie is from the perspective of the parents. I mean, it's written by the dad, Fred Ray. The, the bo- it's, the it's book. based off of a book yeah. that the, is written by Josh's dad. Yeah. The screenplay is not written by Josh. The screenplay right? is written by Steve Zalian, who uh, is a Scorsese regular collaborator. He wrote The Irishman and stuff, okay. and he also directed it. Um, and yeah, and um, it's interesting. He hasn't really, really directed very much. Yeah, so, it's yeah. definitely a a parenting movie. I mean, the I, the whole movie. I think you do get a little bit of Josh's perspective, but. Primarily, I think the perspectives and um, the conflicts for, certainly are the are adult conflicts. So it's interesting that, I mean, that you keyed in so much to it as a kid because I feel like there's not a lot of kid stuff in it. Actually, it's kind of an adult movie, strangely, for having a kid at the center of it. I mean, uh, yeah, although I think I will say a lot of the stuff is, for, I mean, it, it actually flits between the two perspectives, mm-hmm. I think, quite well because you see the the pain and suffering of young Josh and also the excitement at the, initially, right? When he first sees the, like the, the chess, right? It's the, like the, a love scene. Yeah. He like, like when you, fir- like a love at first sight, he's I playing mean. with his friends in the park and then he like goes to retrieve a baseball and he finds the guys playing chess and he, he, it's all shot with long lenses, extreme close ups, And it's just, you're, it's like you're watching someone's eyes go from one part of the scene to the other and just everything that he's taking in and he's just fascinated by it and it's i love that it sets up this like conflict right which is which i think is a, is a somewhat universal conflict that that is the conflict between like what are you going to be interested in so it's like mm-hmm. baseball or chess and Vinny, played by lawrence fishburne has a baseball and he wants the chess piece back and you think oh this is he they're going to exchange and then he doesn't, right? He doesn't, uh, Josh doesn't give him the chess piece. He's, he's got it later when they're looking for a baseball to fit in the glove. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that sort of sets up the, the, one of the fundamental conflicts in the movie, which is how is it that you can have a kind of well-rounded, normal, in a certain way, upbringing, childhood, kind of upbringing slash childhood, um, while at the same time actually focusing and nurturing the talents and hobbies and interests that you have. So on the one end, you want to be well-rounded. You want to be have lots of interests and pursue lots of things because most of us aren't going to be chess champions, right? Most of us are just going to be fine at, at what we do. Um, but on the other hand, it's a virtue to go deep and to really take seriously the interests that you have. And but that's this conflict that Josh faces, and it's a conflict that's most acutely faced by his parents mm-hmm. and his mentors in how to sort of structure his life and allow him the opportunities to go into you know deep into chess, but also at the same time have friendships and um, hobbies, other hobbies outside of chess, you know, baseball in particular, and and so on. I definitely 
resonated with the, with the adults, I think, the first time I watched it because I watched it as an adult. And this time around, I was really feeling for the parents. I was thinking of it as like a sports movie, but it not as chess as the sport, but as like parenting as the sport. <laughs> yeah. Because like, the character of... um. Um, a Fred, the the dad, Joe Joe Mantegna, um, you know, he sort of his he has like his own little arc and where he loses his way yeah. and you know and um his own dip and then he figures out how to how to parent right and you know cracks course. <laughs> so I feel like I mean there were times where I was like yelling at the screen. I was so mad at him for not parenting the way I wanted him to parent. <laughs> You know, it's, uh, but I, but I also feel feel how hard that is for him, and how hard it was for him and Bonnie, his wife, to navigate that. Um, I think you know, if our when our kiddo is old enough to have passions, it's going to be tricky. I think to walk that yeah. line. I think what what I think is so interesting is that it it's not obvious. No, so I do think that you know the movie takes a stand, and ultimately it takes the stand that like. There's a way to kind of have it both ways, but it ultimately is conceding that he's not going to be a chess genius. He's he's actually going to have other interests, and he's gonna he's not going to become this hermetic little chess uh, chess uh, computer who just studies chess and does nothing else. He's gonna right. there's an example of that in the movie, right? The contrast there's a contrasting character. There's another child that and, has been sort of like raised in like a chess petri dish. Yeah, but I think. You know, I think the movie sets it up very blatantly like, you know, this is the way, this is the right way. But I, I do yes. think it's 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 complicated because I think, you know, most pe- most instances of, you know, quote unquote genius at whatever, you know, just the people who are the top at what they do. They have to basically singularly devote themselves to that from a very young age. Mm-hmm. So think of all the classical musicians, all the best classical musicians. Think of all the best athletes for the most part. Mm-hmm. The people like like Jordan and LeBron, like they are singularly devoted to the pursuit of their of the mastery of their craft in a way that um, you know requires, I think, a lot of at, at a young age, a lot of parental oversight, right? That you know, helping keep them on the track, uh, providing for them so that they can they can pursue it, and then ultimately, you know, encouraging it, and not just stepping back and saying, "Hey, maybe you should have other interests." Right? It mm-hmm. is a kind of thing which does require parents to be like, "I see you're really good at this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna nurture that talent by keeping you going when the flame kind of burns out." Mm-hmm. Um, Getting them back on the horse when it gets taught. Yeah, when, when it, gets it gets hard, hard inevitably, they don't win. It, Eventually, yeah. I think every kid. I mean, I I think I was like singularly untalented in everything, <laughs> but but I think you know it's it's when you do find that you're good at something, it's really fun, and then and you like sort of the quit first step beyond the other kids is, yeah. is easy, right? Yeah. And then you immediately, and then you inevitably face some adversity. You don't yeah. you don't win everything right away, yeah. and that's when the going gets tough, and that's when a lot of kids are just like, well, if I'm not gonna like be great at this, then like eh, I'll just you know I'll get distracted. I'll do something else, and yeah. that's when the parents have to sort of step in and it's a and it's a virtue to to push past that adversity and to and to dig deep um but you also don't want to make turn them into maniacs and that brings us to the scene one of the scenes that i absolutely love which is when pandolfini the chess teacher so they bring in bruce pandolfini uh to see if he'll be josh's chess teacher but before pandolfini agrees he takes uh fred waitskin josh's dad 
to a chess tournament. Have you ever been to a tournament before? No. Oh, well, you're in luck, man. This is one of the most prestigious. The talent gathered here is the strongest in the country. Everybody's here. Joel Benjamin, former U.S. champion, among the six highest-rated players in the country. Man in the corner is Roman Zhinji Hashvili, two-time U.S. champion. A few years ago, he was ranked among the top ten players of the world. Asa Hoffman. He's the son of two lawyers. He grew up on Park Avenue, went to Columbia and Horace Mann before dropping out to play chess full-time. He plays about 200 chess tournaments a year. Asa. Asa. How much do you make at the tournaments altogether? About $2,000 a year? Look at that. I got him thinking. I got him thinking. Maybe I can win a pawn. What is chess, do you think? Those who play for fun are not at all. Dismiss it as a game. The ones who devote their lives to it, for the most part, insist that it's a science, it's neither. Bobby Fischer got underneath it like no one before him and found at its center, art. I've spent my life trying to play like him. Most of these guys have. But we're like forgers. We're competent fakes. His successor wasn't here tonight. He wasn't here. He's asleep in his room in your house. And one of the things I love about this scene is that Pandolfini is showing Fred Waitzkin what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. Like how it could go wrong. And and it goes wrong by Josh getting really good at chess, but not great at chess. And he just ends up playing in a chess tournament in a dingy old room with smoke and a bunch of weird semi-psychotic people. And he's broke. Yep. Right? And I mean, if you think about it, like all the instances of adult figures playing chess in this movie are flat broke. Pandolfini's broke. Um, the people who play chess in Washington Square Park are broke. Yep. They're homeless, many of them. Yeah. Um, or they're portrayed as lunatics. Like they portray Asa Hoffman as a complete mm-hmm. maniac. Um, I do love that that's like Pendlefini's introduction is like he's on the phone and he's like, $30? Do you know how much I'm accustomed to taking for speaking engagements? Then he's like, then they cut away to something else and they go back to him and he's like, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough times. It's tough times. And, and it, it's like, you know, nurturing the skill of a, of an artist, right? Where you're like, Ooh, it's like, you're really good at this. But on the other hand, it's, it's like going to be a tough life could, for you. Can you become good enough that you can actually, you know, make a living at this and also succeed in the way you want to succeed? Or can you just be, just be good enough to like scrape by? Yeah. And that's it could such, also drive drive you insane. That's the other worry is that there seems to be something in particular about chess that yes, drives you insane. Absolutely. Too. And, we'll, and we'll get back to this when we get to Bobby Fischer. Yeah. Because of course what this in this movie in 1993, we know Bobby Fischer's a little weird. He disappeared. He's been kind of erratic during his chess tournament days, but we don't know how bad it gets. And we do know now today how bad it got and how 
completely insane Fisher went very quickly after his his famous uh, spa, uh, uh, chess tournament with Spassky when he became the chess champion of the world. So anyway, we'll come back to that. But so Fandolfini shows the father, Fred Waitzkin, all this stuff. But then he's, he says something which is, which is great, which is he says, look, these guys are good. I was good. But your son has something better than all of them. He's got this innate skill. He's the potential to be the next Bobby Fischer. He's got something that we can only attempt to have. We're, we're competent fakes. And I think that that line is so compelling. And it, I think it, it's immediately compelling to Fred Waitzkin, who thinks, holy crap, this guy thinks my son could be the best chess player ever or at least in the in the in the running this is big time and and then he he begins at that point to go down the path of pushing josh really hard yep yep he feels like it's his obligation to like to josh but also like to the world to the chess world i mean that's the way pandolfini puts it he says what i want is i want to get back what fisher took away with us when he from away from us when he disappeared and I, that part for Bonnie is not the the mother is not compelling at all. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't care if the if the chess world doesn't doesn't get another Bobby Fisher as long as her kid is happy. You know she's like not interested in that. Um, but but I do understand why that would be compelling for for Fred. I wonder too. I guess the real life Fred was a sports commentator yeah. as well. But I just wonder too. I if think he something- was a writer for. I believe he was a writer for the Times or one of the New York papers. Okay. Sports columnist. Sports columnist. Yeah, yeah, not a commentator, but a columnist. I wonder too if that's that's part of it. That you know, he's got like a more uh, as part of his as part of his career, he's got this this reverence for for competition and for winning. Yep. But he's also always been on the sidelines. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think that that idea, which of course you're right, is nurtured in sports and athletes too. That there are these like gods among people who are really good. And they're just, you know, like the Babe Ruths or the Michael Jordans or whatever who have this sort of uh, supernatural ability. And as columnists, your your goal very often is to is to play up those narratives, mm-hmm. right? Is to talk about the the godlike entities because it it gets people excited about the following the sport and so on. So yeah, you're right that he probably it's very it was an easy narrative for him to get into. So there are a couple different conflicts. So one is between Pandolfini and the mom, Bonnie Waitzkin. And this centers around the approach to teaching him and, and how much he should, Josh should be s- sort of trained to be a killer. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, there's the scene where Pandolfini says to Josh that you have to hold your opponent in contempt. Do you know what the word contempt means? It's to think of others as being beneath you. To be unworthy of being in the same room with you. I don't feel that. Well, you better start. Because if you don't think it's a part of winning, you're wrong. You have to have contempt for your opponents. You have to hate them. But 
but I don't. They hate you. They hate you, Josh. I don't hate them. Bobby Fisher held the world in contempt. I'm not him. To put a child in a position to care about winning and not to prepare him is wrong. Get out of my house. This scene makes me really angry. I'm such a Bonnie in this situation. But I mean, do, what do you think about Pandolfini's line? That argument that like, you know, if you just don't, if you don't prepare him well, then you're just sending him out there to be destroyed. I, I reject the premise that it's important to hold people in contempt in order to win. So I don't agree with that. I mean, in terms of preparing the child, I think what the kid is going to value what the parents value. And um, by, like, I think when they're talking about Dalton, he's um, the, the dad's trying to convince him that it sounds great or something. And he says, what do you think? And the kid's like, well, if you say it's great, it's got to be great. His world is framed by how his parents feel about something. So if he goes to this chess competition and loses and his parents don't make a big deal out of it and say, we're really proud of you and you did so well and you made it so far, mm. I don't know that he would be crushed. Mm. So I think it's more about like how they how they handle it and how they teach him about winning and losing than like this scenario in which he is not prepared to lose. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I I mean, what if it was part of uh, what it took to win to have that kind of killer mindset? So that's the part I reject. I don't know. I, I mean, see. so I thought a lot about we just watched the we mentioned this in the previous podcast. We've watched the um, the last dance documentary with Michael Jordan yeah. and Michael Jordan definitely has that contempt. Yeah, it's an important part of his athleticism, his competition and his what drives what him. drives him. Yep. Thank you that he has contempt for and and hatred and like grudges. Like I think the number of times he said. And then it was personal for me in that documentary yeah. really like 20 to 25 yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that there's even one scenario in which he like might have made up a personal grievance yeah. in order to like fuel that fire to win. That's Michael Jordan. And it's definitely a way that works. I don't think it's the only way that works. That, okay. So that's, that's right. I think, you know, I do agree with you, but I do find it interesting to think about that. There is this, when you look at people who, succeeded be you know beyond others not just sort of achieved a kind of moderate moderate level of success but like rose to the very very top and a lot of them were almost psychopathic in For terms sure. of their like devotion For and, sure. and 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 that involved in, in particular in competitive uh things like where you're fighting you know zero sum game kind of situations like chess or that where you're directly against someone the psychological component is a big part of it because there there comes a point i think um you know take boxing for instance which i think is a, is a really clear analogy here there comes a point in the match where you've got two guys who are evenly skilled and athletic let's say and there comes a point when they're both tired and then just one of them breaks he just cracks psychologically because he 
you know, he's tired and then he just thinks for that moment, that fleeting moment that the other guys could beat him. The other guy's better. And then he loses because he just, he, he, he loses. It's an internal conflict that ultimately defeats him. And I think that that's a, that's a very common narrative in a lot of sports. And I think it applies to chess. I mean, um, you know, one thing that this movie doesn't go into that much is what a chess tournament like actually is like, like what the tournament situation is. It's not like one game, you know, it's many games right. over many days and the games last hours. It, you know, it's a real, it's like a yeah, weirdly, heavyweight fight you, that goes on for days. Yeah, weirdly you get that perspective from the parents' point of view because I, I love that scene where they lock up all the parents in the in the locker room. Um, and you see how long that like in grueling the chess matches from like just because they're in that locker room for so, so yeah, they're, they're like long. sweaty. And yeah, exactly. And they're freaking out. Yeah. Um, but you don't see, but you don't get Josh's perspective of that that the stamina that's required yeah. to just play game after game after game after game. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and it the games can last hours, and it, it's just it gets to this point where you you may have made a mistake, and then another mistake, and then pretty soon you start to think maybe I've just lost, you know? And then and then you start to play not to lose as opposed to play to win. And I think that that, that is very real. And I, I when, you, when you listen to top chess players talk about what they do to prepare and what's going on in their minds during the games, um, a lot of it is psychological. When you get to a point where, again, people are evenly matched, it's what is the difference? The difference, there's no, there's no luck in chess. The, the only difference is going to end up being a kind of psychological thing. And... You know, Fisher did this a lot. He psyched out his opponents. Um, he he sort of toyed with them. Um, he, you know, he, he he would wait till the last second to show up to the match yeah. and just what keep Spassky on his toes. And you know, another person who did this actually, um, and and there's there's an entire documentary about this uh, is Arnold Schwarzenegger in Pumping Iron. The entire documentary is him uh f- basically playing mind games with a bunch of the other guys including Lou Ferrigno uh, for the Mr. Olympia contest and it it's fascinating though to see the mind games he's playing with these guys where he has a kind of innate understanding of this cuz it's not as if Schwarzenegger was like reading psychology books or something out of people he was just he just kind of had this innate understanding of how to like psychologically dominate another person that sucks I don't like that stuff. But that, fair enough. But you don't like competition. But that's, I think, that, I that's what it comes down Just to. Just be good at chess. You don't have to be an asshole. Chess is not a game that you play by yourself. That's the thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a game played against, it's a competitive game played against another person. And it, it is this game that is, it's a war game. I think, I think right? you and I are going to be just exactly gender aligned for Bonnie and, and Joe yeah. in our, yeah. in terms, our Fred rather, uh, in terms of our orientation towards our child. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. But I do think it'd be like, just be nice to everybody. This is why I do too much trading in Settlers of Catan. Yeah, you trade away all your good stuff. I know. Okay. Anybody, anytime anybody needs some beasts, let me know. (laughs) Beast for wheat. Uh, (laughs) No, I beast for chaff. That's what it is. Uh, But I actually, I actually think. He's like, I got a few extra I could spare. (sighs) I think that's actually messed (laughs) up because. Yeah, because the, the point of the game is to compete. The point of the game is not to like be nice to people. The point of the game is if you're being nice to people, then you're just like a fickle, you know, fairy who's granting favors. As opposed to the point of the game is to win and be competitive, you know, to to, to give to, other people to, stomach aches. Well, no, is to, that the point? To not to be competitive. Mm. The point of the game disagree. is to try to win. <laughs> 
<laughs> if you're not trying to win, then I'm never trying to win yeah, when I play a game. That's we don't play very many board games. <laughs> I'm you as you put it, like trying not to lose. I think I'm like trying. I just don't want to embarrass myself. Usually, when I'm particularly if there's like a multiplayer situation, I want to end up just like kind of in the middle mm-hmm. or maybe like second to last or last. That's fine, but just like not like embarrassingly last. Like that's where I'm always aiming for. Yeah. Well. So you and Bonnie are both into um, uh, having a good, being a good person, having a good heart, having a good heart. That's what Bonnie says. Um, so in the when um, or in not holding scene, your your opponent in contempt, not holding people in contempt. I don't think it's nice. Um, w- there's a scene where um, Josh early on asks if Vinny, uh, who's one of the the players in the park, played by Lawrence Fishburne, he a- asks his mom if Vinny sleeps in the park. And then he proposes that Vinny sleep in his bunk bed because he got an extra bed. Yeah, he's got the extra bed. <laughs> he's got the extra bed. He's like, I was thinking he could just like hang out on my bunk bed. Yep. Well. <laughs> and Bonnie says like, you have a really good heart and that's the most important thing. Right. That's what she's ultimately worried is that he, he, him going deep into chess with Pandolfini and all that is, is going to ruin him. It's going to well, yeah, destroy him as Pandolfini a human being. Pandolfini's sitting there being like, you have to hold everybody in contempt. So she's not wrong if we yeah. do it the Pandolfini way. <laughs> I I also love though that that and this is a this is an important aspect of the movie is the 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 sort of teacher student relationship that Pandolfini has with Josh. Because Pandolfini's um you know, his method is born of strife and loss and mm-hmm. failure. And he knows what it's like to be on the big stage and to lose because you get this all that like, of course, he must have been a chess prodigy with lots of promise and it just didn't work out. You know, he became a good teacher, but he was never that good. And and he it's, you know, intimated at various points in the movie, but that he actually maybe choked, choked in a way, yeah. right? Like he really failed. Uh and embarrassed himself and perhaps his teacher. And um, I think that that uh, baggage that he's carrying really informs how he approaches Josh and what he feels, he's kind of compensating for what he thought he didn't have, which was the kind of killer mind mind instinct and um, the the contempt and everything. Um, Perhaps because deep down, like he's also a decent human being who couldn't actually bring himself to to embody those ver- what he thinks of his virtues. Yeah. That's what I love about this movie uh, is that there are so many. So Josh has so many different adults in his life that care about him. Mm-hmm. that really do care about him uh, that, you know, come into conflict with one another because they can't agree on, you know, what's best for Josh. But I think that but they do want what's best for Josh. But at the same time, there's also this part of them that I think all parents feel um, and or mentors feel that what's going on with their child or their mentee is a part of them too, reflects upon them. Um, part of the reason that I I do love that scene where um, that I mentioned before, where they put all the parents, the parents are trying to like influence their children, trying to help their children. They're kind of talking in their ear behind them. And then one of these early, like lower level competitions and they end up getting kicked out and like put into a locker room. But there's all this kind of competition happening amongst the parents. My kid does this. My kid does that. You know, um, they're just like using the children as reflections of themselves. 
yeah, it's vanity on the parents' behalf. They totally they want the child to succeed where they couldn't, just like Pandolfini wants Josh to succeed where he couldn't, because then it reflects well on him as a teacher, as a parent, as a mentor, etc. Right. They can sort of you know live vicariously through them and also take some credit for this, their success. Totally. I mean, there's um, a silly scene where they're like at a pool and and Fred. Uh, gets asked what his what his score is. Is that how you put it? Uh, his rating. His rating. His, his ELO rating. His yeah. rating. Yeah, and Fred doesn't know what that is, so he makes up a number that in, like is it actually like impossibly high. Well, it's it's not actually impossibly high. He it's says fifteen and meaning fifteen hundred. He assumes it's fifteen hundred, which would be high for a kid of that age. Right. But he but. could see it on the other guy's face that the other guy is like floored. And he just lets him believe it because he just likes that feeling. He gets a little charge out of his kid being a mini genius. Yeah, That's not totally. about Josh at that point. It's just about him and his ego. Um, so there's, you know, of course, they're all they all have that element, too. But in the end of the day, they all care deeply about Josh and they all come together for him. Yeah. It's such a sweet movie. In the end, he, Josh is able to kind of blend the wisdom he gets from everyone. And I think the other point of conflict here is between Pandolfini, again, and Vinny, played by Lawrence Fishburne, who's Josh's right. friend in the park. So Vinny's a street street chess player. It's like a chess hustler in Washington Square Park. And initially, that's how Josh gets into chess. He's playing with Vinny. They become friends. Vinny sees the, the sort of brilliance in Josh's play and encourages him in his own sort of street chess way. And and Pandolfini talks a little bit about like what he, Josh is learning there. He's like, well, look, these guys. He's playing first of all. He's playing speed chess, right? So speed right. chess is basically like any game of chess that where each person gets five minutes or less. Sometimes you play games with like thirty seconds or one minute speed chess. Game. They're moving fast. It's very fast. You're 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 trying to beat the clock as much as beat your opponent. And um, so he's playing speed chess and. A lot of speed chess and hustle chess is uh, about playing kind of radical moves that like put you in a position that nobody would have ever studied. And then you just play tactics. So it's just like, I'm going to like try to like mess with you in like two, three move increments. I'm not really looking for some long game, um, long strategic or positional game. Um, And Pandolfini's like, look, you know, that's great if you want to hustle the drunks in the park. You play real chess like in a tournament, like you gotta play a different game. You gotta play a more classic game, positional, long. You gotta sit and think about your moves, plan it out 12, 20 moves ahead, right? And he's like, Can you just stop having him play speed chess in the park? And but Josh really likes it. He likes playing speed chess in the park. And um, so he's getting these conflicting pieces of advice. And one of nowhere clear is that you know. Vinny wants him to bring out the queen early. Get the queen involved, get the queen working. And Pandolfini's like, just don't bring the queen out. Because the, the 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 standard chess, like if you read a chess book, right? It'll tell you the reason you don't bring your queen out early is that if your if your opponent knows what's up, they can basically use crappier pieces, pieces that are worthless, to attack your queen. And then wait, that wastes time for you moving your queen around mm-hmm. while, you, while your opponent develops a positional advantage. So it's, it's really dangerous to bring the queen out too early because the queen's such a valuable piece it can get and it can end up getting chased around the board. So that's why Pandolfini doesn't want him to do that. But 
Um, Vinny is into it because it's more of a radical move and kind of shakes things up. And also the queen's very powerful, so it can do lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then in the end, you know, Josh is able to sort of blend the styles together. He ends up bringing the queen out early. He loses it, but then he uses some tactics to get the queen back. Yeah. Um, and then he ends up with Pandolfini. He, he is able to see the, the checkmate, whatever, 12 moves ahead. Then he gets a little sassy trick or treat comment. Well, that's when he gets the queen back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that's so he does kind of able to blend the two. I mean, and, and it's also he blends the sort of Bonnie and the Pandolfini. I mean, the trick or treat is like him holding the kid in contempt. But then when he knows he's won, he offers, he offers truce, yeah, he offers the draw. Truce, draw. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know any of these. I don't know any of these chess language things. You're going to have to explain. He offers the draw so that the they draw. can share the. He says, we'll share the we'll share the victory. And he's um, such a sweetie. He doesn't hold him in contempt. He he sees him as an equal and he wants them both to win. And um, the kid refuses the draw. So. Yeah. Plays out. Poor kid. That poor kid with his Izod shirt. He's wearing the <laughs> same outfit. <laughs> he's got the same I outfit. Had that, I had that outfit. You know, when I went to Catholic you, now, school. Can I ask you a question? Were your sleeves like ruched? Because yes. he's, okay. That, yes. that no, I that don't look, think I had seen I before. had that look. So here's why. I went to Catholic school for a semester. <laughs> yeah. And you, had your, and you had your sort of bunched Izod yes. sleeves? There were three colors of Izod style button, whatever they are, polo style shirts yep. that you could wear because it was a uniform. Mm-hmm. You had a uniform. And you could have white dark very dark blue okay or red and that's a lot of variation for a uniform well and then you had to wear khakis okay khaki slacks and then I the see. girls literally it was plaid skirts it was the standard yeah, kind of i i wore multiple plaids yeah. in my day and uh yeah so i had i had the white i had the white one exactly like yeah what that kid was wearing that poor that poor child yeah, me and the also me and the chess tournament was getting defeated in the first round, <laughs> just Aww. getting destroyed, and then being like, "Man, I'm not good at chess." Because I never took it really seriously, you know. I I enjoyed, I enjoyed kind of the tactical aspect of it, but I I just didn't have the patience to the really study. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there is. I mean, obviously, I don't love chess. You know this about me. But if I were to love chess, I think then you know the way that Pendlefini wants to play it is fun too it's a different but it's a different type of actors no both oh, of them both. Oh, but uh, but on the surface the Vinny way is more fun like yeah, he's yeah, a yeah. kid it's fast and loose yeah. it's all about like the smack talk back and forth and like you're yeah you're playing loose and you're playing fast and you like just keep going and yeah more you about lose the, and you come back and new, it's new more game. about the camaraderie i think and like the feeling of being in the park and hanging out with yeah. your friends which is a poor, totally normal thing for a kid to want to do but he also enjoys his you know extremely tactical long game approach too yeah. but you know if I'm sitting there, Josh, being Josh, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to do it the Pandolfini way. Well, yeah, that's boring. But no, but that and okay, hard. So here's another torture. thing. That's Pandolfini doesn't really ever make chess seem like fun. No. He just makes it seem like torture. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So we talked about this at the top, but you know, when you develop a hobby early on as a kid or even as an adult, whatever, and it's fun at first because you can make progress quickly, usually, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're young and your mind is malleable and you're able to pick stuff up and so on so maybe you start to source some aptitude and so then people are like yeah hey, maybe you should take lessons right or whatever maybe you should do this competitively you know go to tournaments that's when it starts to be it not fun mm-hmm. right because then now you have to practice and you have to study 
and you have to devote and you have to lose, right? There's a lot of setbacks along the way once you get beyond the like, eh, I'm decently good at this. Like, you know, I'm quickly good at this thing. Um, and that, there's there's always this point that happens in, in, in your trajectory of whatever you're developing. And for me, I was uh, really into guitar when I was uh, started playing guitar in middle school and I got really serious about it and was doing classical guitar lessons and uh, auditioned for music school and then I got into music school and I did a year of music school. And the only reason I did a year of music school was because uh, almost day one of getting to music school, I it, it ceased to be fun. And I think part of the reason was exactly this. It was that now I was, sorry, before I was just, you know, I played guitar when I had time. And then I played a lot. I played many, many hours every day, but I just played when I had time. It wasn't like my job, which is just something I did on the side. But when you're in music school, it's your job. And mm -hmm. you, it really feels like you, it's just, it's a level of pressure and expectation that I had never experienced. And um, so that sucked. And it was a lot of like, not fun exercises. Yeah. I think to be good at something, you it's like, it's tedious. It's so tedious. You have to do something small over and over and over and over again. Yep. And I realized that I thought I was passionate about guitar. And then what it turned out was that I had a decent amount of like beginner skill and I could pull off certain things, but I, I was not, you know, I was not psychologically at the set at this stage to be able to power through what was going to be required of me, which was, you know, they were, they told me day one, they were like, you're going to have to relearn how to play guitar. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> they're like, you have all these horrible habits that we're going to have to train out of you. And so a lot of my practice was posture and doing very basic finger picking exercises that mm. were just that sounds so frustrating. Just super tedious and you just use it for hours. And you're not playing a song. You're just literally just playing like a stupid scale up and down and like and then, you know, and then you're, you'd Sorry, go. I'm just like imagining you like with my first guitar lesson, like you're just playing hot cross buns over and over. No, it was literally like I'm like. I'm like, <laughs> I'm better than this. I, at least I thought in my mind, like I should be playing like actual good music. And I thought I was going to be doing that. And instead I was playing these like really sort of tedious, boring studies. And I was like, wow, this is terrible. And, and so I realized, you know, that was, that was for me, that realization came then. And, but I think it, it, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're going to get to a point where you're, you're really good at something, you're going to have to break through that yeah. feeling of like, oh my God, this, this is really boring, you know? And, and so there's that aspect. The other aspect for me was um, realizing there are people, other people who are much better. And that's brutal. And Josh experiences that with the kid and he has to face. Of course he wins, but you know, it's that encounter with someone who you perceive as could be better than you, just could be more gifted or more devoted or whatever. And you know, pretty much everyone in music school was better than me in every way of music. And I was like, I just was out of my league, you know, and I realized that, you know, these people have been playing whatever instrument they were playing since they were like three. And they, they had a, a deeper understanding of music than, than I did. And they just obsessed about music more than I, more than I did. And, um, and that was incredibly discouraging. And you have to break through that 
ceiling or, or whatever it is of confronting, not being the big fish in the little pond anymore and nonetheless persisting through. Um, so I think those at least are the sort of twin things. Um, and that, so you have to somehow maintain that passion you know, that you started with, even through all this adversity and through losing too. That's the other thing. You have to make mistakes and be okay with it and use that to fuel your your practice to get better. Right. Um, right. I mean, maybe that is where the contempt comes in because like, you know, for Michael Jordan, the thing that kept fueling him was, you know, his I'm anger. better than these I'm people. better than these people. I have yeah. to be better than these people. I have to destroy these people. Yeah. It's an insult that they think they could have this guy guard me. So I'm going to destroy him. Or if he lost, he'd be like, I'm insulted because we lost. I'm going to come back and destroy them. Right. The next game. You know, we don't see it that much, but what is it that his contempt is fueling him for? Well, one is all the game stuff. When he's in the game, even if he's tired, he's going to push through. But the or like in the flu game is the is the perfect example of this. Like he's he's basically nauseated the entire game, and he's able to go out there and do it. But the other thing is, it's all the behind the scenes stuff. It's all the like now you got to do another rep, and you're just exhausted, and you don't you feel terrible, and you just want to go lay down. And no, you got to put in another rep or. You know, you want to do another three miles on the treadmill. It, you know, just you're by yourself in a gym shooting free throws, and you got to do a thousand more free throws or something. And and you'd rather just be watching TV, but it's like, no, I got to do this. That's where the contempt comes in, and it pushes you. I think to 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 push through, it gives you that that goal that you can visualize. And um, you know, I I have do you to think say, it's just more powerful for the negative emotion, or like, what I mean, is the positive emotion that could be pushing you? It's possible that, yeah, it's possible that there are other ways to do it. But I think for Jordan, it's the it was oh, contempt, for Jordan, yeah. it's definitely contempt. Yes, yeah, I'm not sure what the. I mean, I'm sure you know this isn't this isn't a self help episode. I don't really know. I I, I don't know what. <laughs> What drives you? I mean, I, I just explained how bad I am at playing Settlers of Catan. We can't do a self-help. I we're mean, not gonna, I'm not going to be helpful. Well, clearly, you've Nick, never experienced this. <laughs> I mean, I've experienced it to a certain no, degree. No, I've never experienced this. I've gone out of my way to not experience yeah. this. I mean, the only, yeah, and I've only really experienced it in in the sense of, of having the setback and then just being like, well, I'm going to do something else, <laughs> you know, because like, like, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, which um, I think is a totally normal and average response. how most people will respond. And that's why there's only one Michael Jordan. And I think that's fine. I think that's great. Um, I mean, but no, that there is one Michael Jordan is great. Like, we yeah, don't need a bunch of Michael Jordan. definitely don't need any more. Yeah. Um, I came away from the documentary not very, not very into Michael Jordan. Well, let's, on Michael Jordan, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the fascinating contrast and whether there is this kind of non-contemptuous killer instinct thing that can power someone through is so Jordan and Kobe are like in one camp but then there's LeBron in the other camp and I think like LeBron James seems like the kind of person outwardly at least his public persona is nothing like what we see in Jordan where he feels like he's a guy who wants to have teammates and their success is his success and his success is their success and he shares in that it's like he has a team mentality that he's bringing to the game. Whereas Jordan was like, look, just get out of the way. Let me win this. Yeah. You know, you, you're drag, you're holding me back. If you could just, if I could just go one on five, I would just do it every time. <laughs> and LeBron's never like that. He always is willing to pass. And often that was a criticism of LeBron early in his career was that like, well, he's not, he doesn't have the killer mentality that Jordan did. You know, but LeBron has had quite a bit of success in his career. And I think he's done so without that killer mentality. And I, I think so too. I think 
so the question then is, well, like what drives LeBron? I think legacy, which maybe is this positive thing, is what ultimately is driving yeah. him. He wants to be able to look back and feel maybe pride in the career that he led or something. But I mean, I think to be fair, it's not entirely pos- all positive because I think LeBron is also scared. I think he's driven by a fear that his legacy won't be what it, you know, he thinks it should be. So he's going to look back and he's going to say, I think what LeBron's afraid of is this. He's going to look back on his career and say, well, couldn't win a championship in Cleveland, had to go to Miami. There wasn't really any competition there. He won two out of four. And then he went back to Cleveland and won one, but then he just got steamrolled by the Golden State Warriors who were up and up and coming. And then like that, the worry I think LeBron has is like, that's going to be the, that's going to be how you people describe his career is. Yeah. And it's not like Jordan's where he, you know, he had his younger days where he was getting everything together and then he wins six championships in a row. Yeah. I think one of the things, though, that's different, too, is that LeBron seems to care more about like the legacy that he has or the impact that he has on basketball writ large or the NBA or like, you know, he's got his own school. I feel like he's like interested in and having creating a legacy in terms of the community uh, outside of basketball, of and the basketball. Next year, outside yeah. of basketball, outside of himself. Yeah. Um, outside of himself, I think more like I think he he's interested in like a legacy within basketball too. But like lo, like Michael Jordan was just you know once he's out he's out. It was just all about all about his his stats, his championships, his mm-hmm. numbers, and then he's gone. Yeah. Um, when I think that was different with Kobe too, because Kobe was like a part of the NBA beyond his retirement. He's going to create a legacy for himself. That yeah, was, that's true. Anyway, this is not a basketball podcast. No, but it's interesting to compare. I mean, the other comparisons <laughs> that I was thinking of were Mozart and Salieri, mm-hmm. which is very much, I mean, you can think of this movie like Amadeus almost, where you have, it's told from the perspective of Salieri, who's the competent fake, who's good enough to appreciate what Mozart's doing, but not good enough to understand it. And Mozart, right? That like the genius, right? Who just has this kind of preternatural natural skill who, but who potentially squanders it, right? Um, and then the other one is um, Beautiful Mind with the story of John Nash, um, the Princeton mathematician um, who, who, you know, went and became schizophrenic and um, um, his genius was tied up with, again, with mental illness. And I think that's where the specter of Bobby Fischer kind of looms large here is that what happened to Fisher is after he won the world championship, he's basically just disappeared. Um, he kind of just fell off the surface of the earth and didn't return to, to, to defend the title. And, um, and, <clears throat> and when he did resurface, uh, it became increasingly clear that Bobby Fisher was really losing his mind. He resurfaced once in the early 90s and then later in the mid-2000s, right? Something like that. And especially in the that later time when he came back, he, he had all these conspiracy theories and it was clear we were dealing with a very mentally disturbed individual. Um, he had he had become uh, an anti-Semite uh, and... Um, he, he thought the American government was out to get him. And, um, anyway, so it, it's really a sad cautionary tale. I think that like, you know, chess is this thing and they, they talk about it in the Bobby Fisher documentary, Bobby Fisher against the world, that chess is this thing where 
you have to play paranoid. You have to sort of play always thinking 20 steps ahead and there's all these branching possibilities and you're trying to play through them. The problem is when you try to, when you think of your life like that, uh, it's it's very quickly going to lead to uh, indecision and then ultimately potentially paranoia because you're thinking like, well, if I'm thinking these things, other people are thinking these things. And then, oh no, you know, like yeah. go down this bad rabbit hole. And he just couldn't, he couldn't turn their mind off. And it led him down a very dark path. And I, that's the worry that's looming over Josh. I think that Pandolfini is concerned about at the beginning is that he he said, look, maybe you just don't want this life for your kid. You know, maybe just say, nah, just chess in the park. That's it. And just have fun and, you know, risk uh, driving your kid insane. Yeah, these movies, like genius prodigy movies, like actually kind of like freak me out. Mm-hmm. I think about them like as addiction movies, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the, this movie, you know, definitely hints at that too. When you see the 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 chess players in that like nasty room playing, but he's Pendlefini says something like, "This is the best of the best in this room," and you're like, "This room? Yeah, <laughs> like, this is yeah, not, it's a grungy room. It's not it's not glamorous. That nope. is for sure." Um, but it just seems like totally real that like to be the best at something like kind of costs you your soul. Yeah. Uh, or at least your relationships and like how the hell can you be happy if like your entire world rests on being the best at something because like you can't be the best for long right it's always just like a point in time yeah for anyone it's fleeting there's That's right. always somebody younger stronger yep. smarter more creative coming up at you like yep. always no like country that- for old men yeah, like that's that seems terrible. And also, I think like that necessary drive that like allows you to be the best of the best, like seems like that slavish devotion, like feels akin to addiction to mm-hmm. me and out of control and scary. Uh, that like really freaks me out. And I was, I mean, I, I joked about being singularly untalented in everything, and I think that is true, but I also didn't pursue anything very hard, right. Because yeah. I think I was freaked out yeah. Yeah. At, at being, maybe not at like being slavishly devoted to something or having something subsume me that way. I don't mm-hmm. think I could like understand that as a kid. I think what I could understand was like pressure mm-hmm. and expectations. Yeah. And I didn't, I was like when Josh says, maybe it's better to not be the best because, you know, then you don't let anybody down. Mm-hmm. Um, He doesn't say it that way, but well. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that's how I read it, you know, and I was definitely worried a lot about letting people down as a kid. And so I think like it's like, well, if you're just mediocre at everything, you don't set up any expectations. I'm not going to get any state championship and choke because I'm never going to get to that state. championship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For anything. <laughs> it was just like a dilettante. I mean, I think it's a good point of view. And um, but, you know, it's it's hard not to feel some pull. <laughs> towards the like well you know if, if it's within your reach yeah i don't know i don't know what it is you know why, why it is that you know when it when it's not within reach then obviously we're like who cares like just don't do it don't pursue yeah. that it, but you're if just you gonna could. but if you could then suddenly you're like mm, i don't know what it is it, it, it could be pure vanity that's it it could just be the vanity of wanting to have a certain title and have other people think highly of you because you've achieved that. I'm not sure. No, I mean, I think there, I think there is, if you're really good at something, there's just a want to, to see, you know, how far you can take yourself for your own, yeah. um, f- just for your own 
self-knowledge, yeah. your own self-worth, but also for, you know, like um, furthering chess, perhaps. I don't think Josh cares about that as a little That's kid. That's true. Pandolfini, though, does. But Pandolfini yeah. does. He thinks, yeah. like, the world of chess will be a, 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 a dimmer be better, place. Yeah, better with Josh. Without Josh and better yeah. with Josh in it. Mm-hmm. You know, that he thinks Josh can, can change the game again the way that Bobby Fischer did. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's important to not just, you know, to the world outside of Josh. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the other thing that I, I just keep wishing that these parents that like that, uh, Fred will say to this kid is that, you know, it's okay to lose sometimes. Yeah. Um, cause totally like if, if something's within reach, I think you should, you should push yourself if something was just to see if you to see what you're capable of. But if you're not capable of that thing, it's okay too. And that's the thing. That, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the thing that there's the scene where the when Josh is ex- expressing to his dad that he's scared. Yeah. And he's saying it like maybe I shouldn't go to this to this next tournament. And the dad is just saying, Oh, you know, you won't lose. Yeah. You won't lose. And also they're scared of you. You won't lose, Josh. What if I do? You won't. I'm afraid I might. Josh, they're afraid. They're terrified of you. That that's killing me. Yeah, I, what I think is so me. interesting though about that scene is it sets it's perfectly mirrored in this final scene with Josh and Bandolfini. Yes, where re- he's right before the final chess match and he's like, "I'm so scared." And it, it's, I really actually thought the I don't what this kid's Max Pomerank or whatever his performance was great. He just the fear in his eyes seemed totally real, and yeah. and I knew as a kid that feeling of fear, and of course as I got older, I. I I knew it all too much. Um, but, um, and he just says, I'm just so afraid. And Pendelvini says, you know, you might not win. Like, it, it's like, I'm not supposed to tell you, but you might not win. And and I think that that is, that is the most touching part of the movie for me because it shows, you know, at this, at, on the one hand, Pendelvini reveals to Josh that he, the empathy that he has with him. And it's an empathy that they, only they can share. Mm-hmm as teacher and student, like he can't share that with his parents. They don't understand. They've never been in a situation like this with this much pressure on them. But Pandolfini has. So he's able to empathize with him. He does. And, but he also assures him. He's like, I'll be here. I'll be there the whole time. I'll be there when you come out. Win or lose. I'm going to be there. And that is such a oddly reassuring thing in that moment, right? To just, just be like, yeah, you might lose. But don't worry, I'll be here. Like yeah. it's it's almost like exactly what I think uh, Josh needs to hear and wants to hear. I can't beat him. You might be right. I'm not supposed to say that, but you know I was lying if I said anything else. I have never been so proud of anyone in my life. I'm honored to call myself your teacher. I'm so scared. I know.
As a person who doesn't like sports movies very much, I like this movie a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, but it's because it's also a parenting movie. I mean, yeah. I think most sports movies are also not parenting movies. They're, no, yeah, right. They're they're more about they're more focused on the 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 trials of the athlete in the center of this movie, and not about the surrounding aspects of you know the 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 role of the family uh, as mentors as well and, and and that kind of thing um but yeah i think of it as my favorite sports movie and and you know i do actually kind of like i do like the genre of sports movie I, I like i like a lot of sports movies i like the fighter um i like the i like mighty ducks i like mighty ducks too <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's a certain cliche to them and um but when it can be done well i think there it's it's a weirdly, you know, universal human story that like, because it's about overcoming adversity. Uh, it's this all sports movies are just about that. And, um, and facing challenge and competition. Like these are deeply human things, no matter how much you want to escape the conflict. I, I mean, we are just want to escape conflict. Nature, it, we are part of nature and nature is just a, a just a ball of conflict. Totally. It's, it's a battle over scarce resources to survive. And um so I shouldn't be trading away all my beasts. Yes. That's what I've been saying this whole time. That's kind of what I've been telling you. I've been now you finally realize that you shouldn't be trading away beasts uh. for chaff. I'm like, I'll give you one chaff for one beast. You're like, I'll give you two. What is this? I'm like, how do you how many do you need? Yeah, how many do you need? That's the wrong question. Oh. The right question is give me six chaff. Wow. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, yeah, but it's, I think these movies, you know, they speak to something deeply human in us. And I, of course, I, I think that this one really captures uh, an aspect of it that I, that I, as a parent now really find compelling. And, um, um, oh, one thing though, uh, so Zalian wrote Schindler's List, mm -hmm. uh, starring Ben Kingsley. And that was the same year, 93. Oh, no way. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was wondering where yeah. this movie came in the, like, in the Ben Kingsley oeuvre because yeah, yeah. like I was I mean you'd think maybe Ben Kingsley's presence would draw a little bit more attention to that movie but maybe not in 1993 yeah, uh, no, wait, yeah I think I mean yeah he had played Gandhi at that point and okay. I think that, that Kingsley you know I think Kingsley was probably the biggest draw I think really yeah. nobody else. I mean, Joan Allen is, is, was a good actress and an important one, but no, but, but she's definitely not. She's a, not at a the Kingsley star. level, and, yeah, and yeah. so yeah, she's Kingsley, not an Academy Award winning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Kingsley, you know, is the best. I think he really does completely sort of once he enters the movie, it sort of becomes Ben Kingsley's movie. But totally. Um, yeah, Although anyway. I am such a Joan Allen, Allen fan. Joan Allen is great. I think it's just because I'm like 100% on Bonnie's side in this movie the entire time. And like when she has her speeches or when she kicks out Pend Pendlefini, I'm just sitting there being like, hell yeah. <laughs> like I'm just so excited. Anyway, so that's Bobby Searching for Bobby Fisher, a movie that uh, I, I think we're giving it four thumbs up. <laughs> I put two thumbs and two toes up. So oh, that's, how many toes? You so do maybe, literally have your toes up right now. All right, so we're going to give... I've been looking at your toes maybe give this it whole six, time. Six thumbs up? No, it's not six thumbs up. Four, thumb, four thumbs and two toes. Four thumbs and two toes. I'm keeping my toes down for this one. Really? I put both thumbs up. I think that's that's all it needs. Okay. So that's good. So four thumbs, two toes up. And uh, thanks for listening. Um, 
if you want to follow us, we're on Twitter at CalsPod. It, but you know, you'd be among a very select few. All right. So thanks for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Searching if you for Bobby Fisher. Haven't watched it. Watch it. Yeah, it's a it's fun movie. Good. It's fun. I, it was a movie I didn't know existed before Justin. And I'm glad I know it exists. I gave it five stars uh, on Letterboxd. And um, uh, next week, we or next whatever, next episode, uh, we're going to do Vampire's Kiss, which is a movie that uh, is pretty far from this movie. Oh, my God. Uh, it's so good. I'm going to try not to do Nick Cage impressions the entire the whole, podcast. No, no, no. We got to do a couple a couple. a couple of our favorite deep, deep impressions, sure. deep dive impressions. Sure. But we're going to try and not do the Nick Cage voice the entire time. It's going to be really hard for us. We're, we're really big fans of this movie. <laughs> so that's coming up next. Uh, all right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.